This podcast is produced by Unedited. The Songwriters Podcast is in association with the Ivers Academy and PRS for Music M Magazine. My name's Louise Golby. I'm an independent artist and I've been writing and performing my own music for quite a while now. As a songwriter myself, I'm very interested in the art of songwriting, how song ideas come about, what triggers certain lyrics or how a melody or musical idea is started. In this series, I've interviewed some of the UK's leading songwriters and artists, discussing their songwriting techniques and stories behind their biggest songs and collaborations. My guests have written tracks for the likes of Stevie Wonder, Tina Turner and Cher, as well as receiving MBEs, Grammys, Ivan Avellos and number one singles for their work. My guest for this episode is a British musician, songwriter and producer, and is one of the most successful and in-demand pop songwriters of the 21st century. He's written for the likes of Adele, Will Young, Pink, Florence and the Machine, Take That, Celine Dion and John Legend to name a few. He's behind number one singles, he's won two Ivan Novellos and been nominated for multiple Grammys for his work and he also runs his own label. He was also a member and songwriter of the successful 80s pop band Brother Beyond. I am absolutely honoured to be talking to the very talented and extremely prolific Egg White about his biggest songs, his songwriting processes and his highly successful career. I start with the question I've been asking all of my guests. If I was to introduce you with just one song, what would it be? It basically came about, I'd written or I'd worked with her before. I'd heard her demos. We'd been sent a CD of her demos. I don't think she was co-writing with people, but Lizzie, my manager at the time, got sent a CD of her stuff and it was plainly remarkable. I I especially remember hearing Hometown, Glory and Daydreamer. Just thinking, wow, that doesn't often happen. That's astonishing. And she was 17, I think, at that point in time. Anyway, she came in, we wrote a song together and it nearly went horribly wrong. I was kind of aiming more left field and thinking more about the cure or kind of electro pop or something like that somehow. I don't know quite why. I think it's because her demos were pretty minimalist. I was thinking that would be a sort of thing to be chasing. Anyway, um, and we, we got a great, a great verse, a great kind of sound to the start, but we couldn't turn it into a chorus. And then the next day she came back and we spent about an hour working on it. And then I remember at 11 o'clock in the morning or something, she said, you know what, maybe it's not going to come good. Uh, Maybe we're not going to get there with this one. And I suddenly just had that terrible feeling like we got too much to lose. Um, I went, give me 20 minutes and kind of panicked and hit every single piece of equipment and did every possible mad trick I could. Um, And it worked. And suddenly it was a good piece of music. And suddenly her being the genius that she is, she goes, "Okay, I've got a chorus for that. And the song was tired. It went on her first record. It was called Tired. Um, but that feeling of nearly losing it, um, that kind of moment of horror that you get as a songwriter when you suddenly look at each other and you realise that the song has died on the operating table. Um, <laughs> and anyway, I had that feeling and somehow we brought that one back to life. Anyway, she came back a couple of weeks later and said, look, you write slushy ballads. Let's, let's do one of those. Let's write a slushy ballad. 
I, I basically played some chords that were not very good on an electric piano. And it was a morning and I was probably feeling pretty uninspired. And I just remember thinking, this is not good what I'm serving her. You know, this is not the kind of thing that I would wish to start a piece of music with. And then after I'd been playing them for maybe five minutes, she started singing and it was the verse of Chasing Pavements to the chords that I was playing. And it was just so much better than I would have. You know, sometimes you work with somebody or sometimes you do something, you realize there's a kind of range of possibilities and then they do something that is so much better or more unexpected than what lies between those, you know, the, the circumference, if you like, of your kind of imagined possibilities. And it's completely beyond it. Anyway, what she sung was so much freer and more loving and gentle than I had imagined would be possible. And then suddenly it was just really easy. Yeah. And for a couple of hours, maybe an hour and a half, it didn't take long, the two of us ran together. You know, in terms of kind of where did the melodic or, you know, where did the melodies come from? They came from her. Um, and where did the lyrics came from? They also came completely from her. They were just very loving lyrics. I don't know whether they related to something that she was going through or going for or hunting after or hoping for at the time. Um, I don't really ask. And often I haven't got a clue what's going on with singers until years sometimes later when I realized that they were going through a painful divorce or, you know, right. something was going on. Effectively, I don't really know what it was about because... Once the song was written, you know, what was clear was it was really her song. You know, the, the lyrics were hers completely and almost all of the melody, I think. But it was just a lovely moment. There are moments when you kind of look back and you realise that in a way you were doing the songwriting equivalent of running down the street, kicking a can. Yeah, that was it. The two of us for a couple of hours just ran down the street, kicking a can. Um, <laughs> And we got to the end of the street and we realised that it had, you know, turned into something good. All sorts of things happened during the writing of that song that kind of challenged my feelings about what a song is or what it can do. Um, one of them was, you know, typically when you write a chorus, you repeat it. You know, so on, on Chasing Pavements, it goes, should I give up or should I just keep chasing pavements? Maybe, and, and I don't even think it went, yeah, no, even if it leads nowhere. And then the instinct is just to go, yeah, should I give up? And you just repeat it. It's like, yep, keep kicking the thing into the goal, you know, kick the same thing in so that people remember it. And she then sung something different. And I remember looking at her and possibly even saying to her, is this some sort of suicide note? You know, we have something here that's worth repeating and you're not repeating it. What are you doing? Right. She goes, no, 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 I know what I'm doing. It'll be fine. Don't worry, it'll be fine. Um, and it was fine. It was better, of course, than just repeating <laughs> it. Um, I've often looked back and thought it was extraordinary how somebody aged 17, I think she was 17, maybe she was 18 and I don't know, she was pretty young, how yeah. someone that age can be not just so evolved, but also have such good command of herself. You know, that she would be in a room, I don't know how old I was then, 40, let's say, you know, but properly established. You know, but she go, no, 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 we're fine. We'll be fine here. You know, you wait, it'll be all right. I know what I'm doing. Did part of you think how, you know, I should be taking instructions from a 17 year old? No, know? no, it did not. Did you just no. you trusted everything she was doing. It was so obviously appropriate to trust what she was doing. Um, yeah, no, I, I didn't have any part of me that was thinking that at all. A part of me was just thinking, this is just a remarkable thing. This is something that doesn't often happen. 
where somebody comes in. There was another thing a little bit later we were writing. I think not for that record. Maybe it was, I know it was. It was after we'd written Chasing Pavements. We were then writing a third song. So it was maybe a few weeks later or a couple of months later or something. Yeah, we'd written a tune that the two of us knew was a banger. Um, so we got one under our belt. Anyway, it was a little bit later. And at that point, I was pursuing a theory that from a gambling point of view, it was a much better idea to have your central phrase first, to know what it is you're trying to make your song do, um, to have your kind of central operating principles in place, if you know what I mean. You know, ideally, mm. you've got a great line. Um, possibly you've got a melody that fits well to the great lyric. Um, and then I will, and then I said, look, and then I'll be able to make the chords work to that. Anyway, we spent probably a day following that theory. And I remember getting to the end of the day and her going, you know what? I think you'd want to reevaluate that theory. Um, you might not be right. That might not be the way to get the best songs. Um, you know, in a way, kind of, I remember we met up next day and I remember thinking, yeah, perhaps she's right. Maybe the right way to write a song or the best way to write a song isn't to be thinking about damage limitation, you know, um, to get something strong and then build around that consciously. Maybe the best way, maybe she's right. Maybe the way to write a song that excites both of you is one that you don't see coming in any way, shape or form, you know. Anyway, and then we had a really good song after that. We got a good one, Melt My Heart Stone, which again, just came from the music. And the fact is on all those songs, I think pretty much all the words were hers. Chasing Pavements was released in January 2008. And although it was Adele's second single from her debut album, 19, following Hometown Glory, which was later re-released, it was her first breakthrough song as an artist. The single entered at number two in Downloads Alone and was one of the biggest selling singles of that year, as well as being Adele's first Billboard Hot 100. It received three nominations at the 51st Annual Grammy Awards, Record of the Year, Song of the Year and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance, which it won. Normally, with other songwriters, do you give your... It's, is it 50-50 with lyrics or just kind of... It depends. It can go all sorts of ways. Amy Winehouse was the same. All the words were hers. But normally... No, normally I'm writing half the words or maybe most of them or quarter of them. Or It depends on who the singer is. It depends on if I've got the skill set to jump in on their use of language. You know, yeah. sometimes there are whole genres that it's like, you know what, there's a kid called Barney Fletcher who's really good. I don't even go, I don't touch Barney's flow. I might make suggestions, but only to kick Barney if he's slowing down to remind him that there are many worse outcomes than him running with a second best option of his. Um, but no, normally, no. Normally I write, write lots of the words with people and consider it a huge part of songwriting, really important, central. You obviously saw the potential in her, which was why you didn't want to give up on that songwriting session, like you were saying. But do you think you could have predicted how successful Adele was? Because she is one of the biggest global yeah. stars. Yeah, apparently I did. Um, Oh, yeah, the other thing was, I didn't say this, we're chasing pavements, and basically she sung it the first time sitting down with no power, and then I realised that I was the only one who'd been singing it out. And I remember her going, fuck, I don't think I want to do this. Uh, this isn't what I do, you know, I don't really do this. Um, and then I realised that, you know, the songs I'd heard of hers, she hadn't sung out, you know, she'd been singing quietly. And then I remember her going, oh, to hell with it and standing up and pushing the chair back. And, and then the next two takes with the record. Um, but it was, that was a moment where I really panicked. 
you know, we'd got a brilliant song. It was such fun to sing. I'd been singing it loud all afternoon. I knew what fun it was to sing. And the idea yeah. that, that we would get this far right into the room and then she'd step away from it was one of the worst horrors of my life. Anyway, but yeah, I did know she was going to be enormously successful in some way or other. Uh, before we talk about your other big songs, I want to talk about your journey of your career as a songwriter. So how did you get into songwriting and do you remember the first song that you wrote? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, I come from a family of players, classical family. Um, so I was a piano player and a violin player and a double bass player and a flautist um, at school. And both my mum and dad are orchestral players. So it was the family trade. So that's how I got into it, um, is by having to do it. Um, every, you know, you'd have to do your hour and a half's practice every single day on the two or three instruments or whatever it was you were doing. So that, that, that's, that's the background. And then I discovered pop music when I was 13 and kind of stepped a bit away from classical music. It was that song, um, Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. Uh, I remember taping the Top 40 off Capital Radio when I suppose I was about 11. And that was the first pop song I heard that I didn't think was fucking awful. And I remember really liking that. And then after that, it was just all the classic stuff that happened with New Wave, you know, XTC, um, Magazine, Bow Wow Wow was a big thing when I was aged about 11, 12, 13, 14. So that kind of thing was where it flowed from at that point. And then another breakthrough moment was hearing the Ray Charles version of um, Winter Wonderland in Harry, When Harry Met Sally. When I heard that, I was like, what the hell is that? You know, there aren't many moments where you hear something and a bulb just goes off, you know, a bomb goes off in your head. And that was one of them. And then I, when I was 15, I got asked to join a country and Western funk group. And we got a deal and made money. And I was at school and making money. And then it didn't go very well. And then I joined my brother's band, which is called Brother Beyond. We were signed to EMI Records. And we were all pretty young. Well, I, was, I suppose I was the youngest, but we were signed to EMI Records. And we were meant to have a hit, but we didn't. Um, and we had records out and they'd get to about number 50 in the charts and then they'd turn, turn around and go back down the charts again. And we had a fan base of sorts in West London, but it wasn't the real deal. And we'd made a record, made a whole album. It was all made. And what was clear was there were no guaranteed hits on it. And basically EMI entered an auction for charity and the winning thing in the charity was the right for Stock, Aitken and Waterman to write a hit record of some sort for a nominated act by the record label. So I think EMI bid £30,000 um, for charity, which just went for charity, and then got the right that Stock Aitken and Waterman would write a song for one of their artists. And they nominated Brother Beyond. And it looked quite an outside decision. I remember we were all like, wow, what the hell is that? Um, but obviously it was a brilliant decision. They wrote a song called The Harder I Try. We didn't know if it was a hit or anything at that point, but Nathan went in and sung it. We had nothing to do with it as the band. But 
we'd finished the album and then one day I listened to it and actually it was even earlier than that. I'd written another song called Here Come the Rockets, which I wanted Nathan to sing. Um, and he did sing it and he was a brilliant pop star, but he was not the greatest singer of that kind of song. Um, and I'd sung it almost accidentally and I sung it well. Um, and then Nathan sung it and he didn't sing it well. And I suddenly thought there is a limit on this band from a creative point of view. Um, and it might do really well and might make lots of money, but it's very, very limited creatively and I want out. Um, and so I went to the manager and said, Simon, I want out. And he said, well, what you don't know is that we've taken out a loan um, to keep the band going. And your brother, Dave, um, signed for Flato for his collateral on the loan. Um, and my granddad had died and had left us enough money to buy a flat, me and my brother. So suddenly it was looking like a very, very serious situation. Um, and, so I, and Simon said, look, we'll work the drummer, Steve, in, in your place. Um, and then hopefully EMI won't even particularly notice if you leave. But give me a year to get you out of the group and to get him into it. And I'm sorry to turn this into a shaggy dog story, but basically what happened was in the middle of this year, Stock Cake and Waterman wrote this hit record and it became clear that it was a hit. Um, and I mimed to it once at the junior best disco in town in Hammersmith Palais. And it was clear that we got a hit record there. Um, the, band, the audience just went mad for it and they'd never heard it before. No one in the room had heard it before and they all went properly bonkers for it. So I was allowed to leave the next day and did. Do you think your songwriting process and technique has changed um, over the years? And depending on who you're working for, you've already mentioned that sometimes you're involved with the lyrics and sometimes not. But what about musically? Uh, do you feel like you have a standard, consistent songwriting process? No, absolutely, completely inconsistent. Um, you know, I've, ch I've had cause to change it so many times and sometimes I'll change it and think, oh, God, that's really fascinating and I'll try that for a bit and then realise that that also has its profound limits. But no, I mean, obviously, if you have the same songwriting system, you're going to write the same song or things that, you know, have more than a house resemblance. You know, they're practically idiot twin brothers or something. Um, no, I change it continuously and constantly. I have what my, 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 my aim is to surprise myself, um, to do something I haven't done before, to do something that I didn't see coming at the beginning of the day, um, in any of the spheres of it, you know, in, in, in melody, in chords, in structure, in words in particular, just in the flavour of the thing. So technologically, yeah, everything. Every, every day I'll try and write in a different genre, in a different way. That's the only way to continue to enjoy the work. Are you always put in the session with an artist or are you often asked by a label to have a song ready in advance or for a brief by an artist, uh, sorry, a label? Yeah, no, never that. Um, never that. If, if very few people take outside songs, you know, publishing is such an important part of the revenue these days. Um, young artists, I think appropriately enough, think they'd be mad to take an outside song unless they absolutely have to. So, no, it's always the former. I'm always, an artist comes in, you know, for last year it's been virtual, but I'm back in the room with people again, thank heavens. And, yeah, and, you know, we'll both come in with a clean slate. You know, sometimes I'll have an idea or I'll have been thinking about or playing their music and I might have a lyric or a 
perhaps a melody or a little bit of something that I go, oh, we could, you know, maybe I will listen to other people's music and go, look, you know, kind of play fantasy football. What happens if we take the drum pattern from this, but we're grafting it onto this? But I like the minimalism of this one. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of that. But I know some people prepare a lot and I don't prepare. And commercially, it's a very bad idea to not prepare. But aesthetically, it's a much better idea. It means it's always fresh meat. That's true. So you've never had a, a thing where you've been put with the session and the label or the manager said, we really need to write an upbeat song today. You've never had that restraint on you? or Oh, no, we get it? that a lot. Yeah, I get that a lot. You know, and that one in particular is interesting. You know, I've been thinking a lot for the last 18 months how to write an upbeat song with dignity, um, you know, and kind of in a way collecting together examples of uh, songs that are upbeat songs that have dignity. Um, there aren't so many. Yeah, there are a lot of upbeat songs that are kind of full of something a bit desperate. Um, there are upbeat songs that are full of joy. But, yeah, an upbeat, it's, 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 it's a rare thing. Um, mm. It's funny how rare songs, are, you know, how rare, yeah, it's obviously an evil thing to say, but there are very, very few very good songs out there. Do you ever feel nervous when you've worked with big global megastars like Mary J. Blige, John Legend, Celine Dion? Were you in the room with those artists and do you ever feel nervous when you're writing with global artists or other co-writers that you admire or yeah. do you think you do? Yeah, so one word, yeah, the answer is yeah. You know, I remember kind of going to work with Pink and, you know, of course you're nervous. You know, got on a plane, I'm jet lagged to hell as well, can't sleep. <laughs> but mainly, yeah, tremendously nervous, yes. Um, yeah, especially if you think they're really good. You know, if they're really famous and you think they're a bit crap, well, that's fine. Um, <laughs> but if they're famous and really good, yeah, that's not straightforward at all. And does that feel like there's more pressure from the States or you know, the way the labels work over there or the management work? Does it feel like a different vibe in what they want from these sessions? I don't know. I don't do so much of it. No, maybe not. No, I don't think so. I think everyone really wants to have something where the artist likes it and it sounds like it could be a hit. No, but not so different. I think England and the States, you know, seem to be converging a bit in terms of what people want. It, it doesn't feel as if writing a song for a stateside artist is much less likely to get on the record or to be a good song. And I'd love to say I do Give everything to you But I can never now be true So I say Before I fall any deeper I think I'm better deep right now Feeling weaker and weaker Somebody better show me how Before I fall any deeper I think I better live right now Uh, let's talk about your other big songs now. So Leave Right Now for Will Young, which was listed as one of the top number one songs of all time. Uh, and also James Morrison's huge hit, You Give Me Something. So should we talk about, let's talk about the Will Young song first. I want to know whether you remember how that songwriting session came about and the premise of the song and basically, yeah, how that song started. Yeah, I do remember. Um, I got approached by... 19, Simon Fuller's company, 19, to write a Christmas song for Gareth Gates. And it was really a, you know, big commission. No one had ever asked for anything, especially not from a decent company like that. Um, so I was 
really concerned about it. It was quite close to Christmas as well. I remember the weather was a bit awful. And I spent four days trying to write something and got absolutely nowhere. And on the Friday, in disgust and fury, gave up round about two in the afternoon um, and started writing something completely different. And Leave Right Now was, was done by six. And I don't really remember the process. I just remember it was desperate you know, I'd taken a lot of money. I needed to validate that money in some way. I needed to somehow get some money for somebody, you know, and I'd got a young family at that point, or perhaps I'd got one kid, maybe. I think Fox was born. And something had to go right. And that song came out of that. And actually, I don't remember writing the chorus at all. You know, in a way, it was made of different bits. Certainly in my mind, I was thinking about that song, I'll Always Love You by... Dolly Parton, not the Whitney version, Dolly Parton's version, the intimacy, the country and Western kind of intimacy of the verse. I wanted that. And then the chorus just had to go up, was all I knew. It had to go up and had to have feelings. And then it was written very, very quickly, you know, in desperation at the end of a week. And then a year and a half went by and nobody came near it, or a year went by. At one point, it looked like Ronan Keating was going to do it. <clears throat> but nothing came of that. And Lizzie, my manager, was convinced it was a hit, um, convinced it could do well for somebody. And, and actually it got through by sheer, it got through by nepotism and luck and persistence. And the story was, was long and hard about getting that song through. Leave Right Now was recorded by Will Young in 2003 and it reached number one in the UK singles chart and also won the Ivan Novello Award for the best song musically and lyrically in 2004. The buzz around Will Young at the time was huge because that pop idol was the first of that genre, which is now, you know, a norm in our society, isn't it? The talent competitions. That song as well was a significant moment in popular culture. So you must, you were Not part really. of that. Not really. No, I mean, so he'd won the contest and then it had taken them a year to make the first album. So the first album would come out a year after he won the contest, I think. And then this second album followed, I think, two years after that. The record company was so without faith in it, they only printed, I think, 80,000 copies of the single and sold out in a day and a half. But no one thought it would be a hit and they were massively without stock and for four days no one could buy it. Um, and they got the stock in just in time to get it across the number one line at the last minute. So no, it was not a keenly anticipated anything. Um, I thought it was going to fail. It didn't look like it was going to go at all. So the day that you, you found out how successful it was, you must have just been like, ah, you know, a weight lifted off of your off your shoulders yeah. as well. I was working with Kathy Dennis. I think it was my birthday. Somehow all these things, I think it was my birthday when, it, when I found out it had gone to number one. And she found out too. And I remember the feeling was it was as if a little switch had been down for years, just quietly went up. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. For every piece of me that wants you Peace backs away. Cause you give me something that makes me scared. All right, this could be nothing. 
so James Morrison, that was his first single. Can you tell us about that songwriting session and how that song came about, if you can? Yeah. I'd been sent his CD by his manager and it was obvious he was the most amazing singer. Um, immediately, without hesitation, was like, yes, that's a yes. In a way, it thought, he sounded more like Terence Trent Darby at that point. But yes, of course, of course. And then me and him wrote a song together about his hopeless dad. And it was a really good song. And there was absolutely no comeback at all from his manager. And I remember two of us were highly pissed off that this song hadn't met with total acclaim. Anyway, I think it was the second song we wrote together, like, again, with Adele. Um, and I had a kind of whole set of theories about there's a Count Basie chord sequence that I want in there. There's another chord sequence off a very obscure song that I'm not, not going to mention because I'm too close to it. Um, but there were all sorts of things I had in my pipe for what we were going to build this song out of. And at the same time, Jim had this kind of country verse. Anyway, we spent the whole day messing with my theory and his theory and the two never the twain shall meet and we can't get anything going and yet it's clear that we're just a tiny bit off and then at about four in the afternoon I corrosively attack his pretty melody and put my slightly more barbaric chords on and switch the idea around from it being a song where he's saying all the lovely things she does to it being him trying to denigrate all the lovely things she does. And that, turning the chords around, making the lyric bitter, you know, grudgingly loving but hidden under a cloak of bitterness, and then suddenly hitting the chorus and the Count Basie chord sequence swinging into action. And around about five o'clock in the afternoon, we just suddenly had it. And it, it was a, you know, it was just a whole day of trench warfare, really, trying to get there. It wasn't easy at all. Some songs come easily. Chasing Pavements came easily once it had got its trigger. But this one was an absolute pig from start to finish. Did you have a good feeling about it, Ed, once that session, the song was written? Yeah, we were like, they better bloody like this one, those bastards. Um, <laughs> and they didn't, in a way. In a way, they didn't quite get behind it. You know, they were forced. I think the electric cattle prog came out and... You know, of course, in retrospect, everyone claims authorship of the choice, the obvious choice that that would be the opening single. But no, they were not just behind it. It was few things happen just in a beautiful linear way. What was it that flipped their decision and then said, actually, this is the one we're rolling with? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't know. It seems like you're the go-to person for breaking artists through with Adele and James Morrison and you also worked with Sam Smith on his debut album. Is that what you feel like record labels come to you and say, right, Egg writes these amazing ballads, he's great at writing these these breakthrough hits. Do you, do you feel like that's how you, you've been? No, I don't actually. I mean, I think there was a moment where that was the case, probably from 2003 to 2009, something like that. Then, yes, that would have been the story. But I think the story now is different and possibly better and more interesting. I think, I think I really like music and I really care about it. And I know everyone would say the same, but I just think there's a kind of, I'd like to say a quiet desperation about the way I go about the task, but I don't think that's quite right. I think, 
I think people don't know what they're going to get. I think people don't know what they're going to get. I think I don't know what we're going to get. So I think it's almost the opposite of the idea that people will come to me knowing that they're going to get something which is likely to be a, you know, a useful staging post for their artist. I think probably people come to me and are hoping that something will happen which is in that overlap between truly surprising and hopefully commercial. I think mm. it's much more off-beam than that. And I think, it, you know, almost perverse, my wife would have it that, you know, that the decisions I make are so commercially perverse in terms of how I structure music and everything. And I think you're know, sitting next to that is my really strong wish that it would remain fresh and remain alive and that I would really be proud of the bits of work that get through. Um, yeah. And of course, I'm tremendously upset at the really good bits of work that don't get through, that don't make it onto records. Um, so I think it's, I think hopefully that is what has kept me as somebody that people still send artists to. But I'm definitely trying very hard not to write to a formula. So with female artists, do you make sure you find out their range, their vocal range before you're in the session? Or do you see what happens naturally, like organically in the room with where you go with chords and things? I've only done it once and that's with Celine Dion just because you're writing for her, not with her. Right. So with Celine, I went and sat and you know, listen to two or three albums and I've got a kind of chart out. I go B flat, still hard, but getting a bit thin, you know, G, yeah, this is the creamy section, you know, but also can be, you know, I'm just trying to kind of do a color map of what her tones are in different parts of her voice, you know, low, realizing how low she'll go, where it falls to pieces, wherever the body disappears. So I did that in order to get the key right on the song um, that I'd started writing for her. Um, but that's the only time I've ever done it. So no, is the answer. But um, yeah, but obviously girls and boys have different, totally different things in terms of, you know, boys, classically high tenors, you know, you, the closer you get to G, G sharp, A, A, A sharp, you know, the more you're going to get a kind of intensity there. You know, I realised with Matt Cardle too late in the day that he's just magic between F and B natural. But below that... The standard formula doesn't work. So, um, you know, the standard formula is you'll, the verse will be probably a fifth or even a sixth below where you're singing the chorus. But actually his tone wasn't so interesting down there. But we realised too late in the day, no, we've got it. It's all got to be up there, you know. And the two of us writing together to try and get his breakthrough record, we didn't succeed. Um, but that was... I realised too late that it should... Anyway... That's, I suppose, that was an unusual example whereby the kind of usual rules don't apply. Um, but I'm, I'm a high tenor, so I'll, I'll sing up to a B natural or even a C in full voice. And then I've got no falsetto anymore. It's just you get older and it starts to fall to pieces. But I've kind of got a girl's range. There aren't many blokes who, who sing as high as I do. Sam Smith's as high. Did you sing on a demo that you showed Celine or did you sing it to her in the room? No, I sung it on a demo. Yeah, I sang the demo. Seven days has gone so fast I really thought the pain would pass It's been nearly an hour since I thought of you But you're not answering the phone I'd settle for a busy tone At least by that I know that you're okay 
lyrics-wise, have you ever been influenced by what's around you politically or socially when writing a song? Yes and no. As soon as it becomes political, I've had this happen with lots of people, you can just look a prick really quickly. Especially these days, it's as if kind of it's changed, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, 50 years ago perhaps, it was more acceptable, but it comes across as whinging so quickly. Two or three times we've tried doing it, and with really good people who had exactly the right voice and found that we couldn't gauge it right, we couldn't get the tone right, you know, if it either sounded like hectoring or mean-spirited in some way. So in terms of actual political songs, no. Um, I've never succeeded, tried four or five times. Let's talk about your accolades. The Grammy nominations, the Ivan Avello wins, uh, the multiple number ones, multi-platinum. How do these make you feel and your family? What do they mean to you? Ooh. It's lots of things. It's a mixture of pride and humiliation. Uh, the pride, obviously, is a lovely feeling, you know, of being wanted... And then the humiliation is, ah, but why can't I repeat it? <laughs> you know, it's that kind of hilarious Leonard Cohen line. If I knew where the good songs came from, I'd go there more often. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, a little bit like that. You know, there are times when you get amazing opportunities and cock them up. I feel that often a kind of stinging shame at having had an amazing opportunity. You know, Lana Del Rey, Lana Del Rey, amazing. You know, but I worked with her right at the very beginning. And me and her wrote a couple of total pop songs. Um, I had no idea that she had this beautiful, bar- you know, lower voice and, you know, completely missed it. Uh, you know, she was a brilliant lyricist. It was great fun. But, you know, then when I heard video games, it's like, why did I not miss? Why, why, how could I have so completely missed that? What an idiot. Um, you know, so that kind of feeling's in there a lot. And then, uh, you know, obviously a huge relief to have made enough money that I can raise a family in comfort. Um, and, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's all of it, just like it yeah. is for all people, isn't it? It's, it's all feelings all mixed up at once. It's, I, I guess, yeah, when you've had an Iva or had that Grammy nomination, it then probably, yeah, drives you to be like, well, I want to win one next year or I want to I get more of this for each song, so... But in a way, that gives you more drive, doesn't it? You don't just go, well, I've got one now, so I'm going to leave it. And like you said, you've still got that passion and love for music and want to do it. So it's great. Actually, you have kind of touched on this with the James Morrison song. But what song are you most proud of as a songwriter? As in, it doesn't have to be your most commercially successful song, but the one that you feel most proud of musically or lyrically. Yeah, it would be that one. I really like that one. I think it would be that one. Partly because it was just such a bastard to land it. Um, And normally it doesn't go like that. Normally they come quickly and easily when they're good. But this one did not. This one was just, you know, like a kind of fishing metaphor. You just, you know, (laughs) tried pulling and pulling for ages until the thing just got so tired it came out of the water. Okay, so the final question is, what song do you wish you'd written? And what is it about that song? Yeah, no, that's definitely Crazy by Niles Barkley. You know, I was talking about that kind of overlap between, 
you know, an up-tempo song with dignity. That's obviously the best example ever written. Um, it's up-tempo, you nod, nod your head, you know, you walk down the street and you hear builders everywhere trying to sing the high C sharp in full voice that CeeLo sings. You know, it's in full voice. It's like no one can sing a C sharp. He can, builders certainly can't, I can't. But there it is as an open challenge. You know, it's just an amazing thing. The lyric in the verses is beyond perfect. Um, such a strange lyric. There isn't a single other song that's got a lyric about madness and the line between extremes and madness and wanting to be on that spectrum. It's very, you know, it's a very, it should be, there should be millions of songs about it. You know, everybody is looking you know, via extreme sports or, you know, endurance things or just staying up super late. Everyone's looking for that moment where you crack through a normal existence into something extraordinary. And that song is about that. Um, it's the most wonderful piece of singing. The timing is brilliant. Um, I was working with CeeLo and I asked him about it and he said, yeah, Brian played him the backing track with kind of caveats because somebody else had already done a pretty shit rap on it, apparently. Um, and so Brian played him the track and CeeLo said, no, I can do something with that. And he said he lay on a sofa for several hours in and out of sleep with his mobile phone writing it and kind of got up four or five hours later having written it and it somehow fits that idea that it was written in and out of sleep that it was that it came from you know such a different place or state um i love that what what tracks did you work on with CeeLo? Um, I think only one got through. I think I did three with him and one got through. CeeLo came to London and he came in. We spent the first day writing a song that was really good and really odd, but hadn't got that kind of perfect simplicity, the thing that you want, you know, the one where you know this is really good. Anyway, and then... I think halfway through the second day, we'd finished it. I put it to bed. He was happier with it than I was. And then we started something else and it was just brilliant. Uh, it was just absolutely everything I would have wanted to have done with him. A brilliant lyric about forgiveness, about non-forgiveness and what it meant to be judged by people. Just the kind of moment where he's just like, you can see they're just a genius, just dripping off him. Absolutely brilliant. And I remember we got there, got, anyway, I remember saying, see you, see you tomorrow. Um, and him going out the door. And then it was the last day of the Christmas holiday and we were due to go down to Cornwall on holiday. And I waited and waited and no one could find him. No one could find him. Around about five in the afternoon, that's it, I've got to go. And we go and it turns out he's been on a mammoth bend of the night before. And... Yeah, and went to sleep all day. <laughs> and we never got to finish it. Oh, God, I was upset. I was beyond upset. I was pissed off as hell. And Polly really cocked it from me that holiday. Um, but we never, it never got finished. Um, 
And it was just, we just got to the front of a chorus and it was just, yes, I knew exactly what this song was going to do. I knew how it had to do it. I got the production in place and that's it. Oh, that felt bad. (laughs) Have you kept in touch with him? Yeah, I saw him afterwards and we tried to finish it, but the feeling had gone. Yeah, actually, good point. There was another song I really liked with him that Lizzie, my manager, didn't like. Ah, it's funny. The ones that get on, it's heartbreaking. The ones that get on are never the ones you want to get on. <laughs> I've had two with him that I'd have loved to have got on. And the one that went on is by so far the least favourite of mine. Anyway, there you go. That's life. Professional songwriter. If you want to know more about Egg White, please check out his Wikipedia page. Please also have a listen to our specially curated Spotify playlist to hear some more songs that he's written or co-written. If you want to know more about me, please go to louisegolby.com. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. This podcast is produced by Unedited.